You're listening to The Bridge Metro West, located at 7 Strathmore Road in Natick, Massachusetts. For more information about The Bridge Metro West, our weekly Sunday gatherings, and other events, go to www.bridgemetrowest.com. God, I thank you that you've given us the capacity to prophesy over our soul. That you've given us the capacity to put our hands on our bellies and say, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is, is within me, even when we don't feel like it, because there is a lion inside. And I love your scripture, oh God. <laughs> the wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. God, I pray in this day, in this hour, that you would unlock, unleash, raise up, release the lions in this land again. We feel this growing intensity in your spirit. We, we sense the movement of your river. God, would you give us the courage to get right in the middle of it, not just on the, the shore, but get right up on the edge and keep walking until you carry us where you want us to be, God. Would you open our hearts and open our minds today? Would you increase our discernment would you increase our hunger for your word? May it be insatiable, unrelenting, the primary hunger of each day to be saturated in your word and thereby having our minds renewed in that pure water as we ingest the pure milk of your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Deb and I landed last night. We, uh, we left Tuesday and came back yesterday. We were out in Pasadena uh, with Che, who will be here this weekend. So it was good to see him. And actually, I also found out while I was there that um, the vice chancellor of Wagner University, Benny Yang, is also coming out. So now we're trying to coax Evi Zavala to come out. You know, then we'll have a Korean, a Chinese, a Mexican, and you know, we'll just be multicultural right out of the gate. Um, but uh, Benny's coming out to do some college tours. Uh, not for him, but... Uh, for one of his kids, and so I'm excited. Uh, Benny is a dear, dear friend. Uh, he's the one that, that brought me into Asia, um, and uh, he makes me cry sometimes. Uh, from, from the stage this week, he, he looked at me and said, we're going back to China again. Now, privately, he said, yeah, but you can't go, go to China right now, <laughs> which is true. Um, it's a difficult climate there, um, not just because of, uh, of COVID or the obvious, but obviously the, the political climate is difficult. And, um, you know, we've seen persecution firsthand. 
And when I think of that nation, which is just one of, one of the nations that I love so dearly, the people that I love so dearly, uh, it truly does bring tears to my eyes because they're so desperately reaching out for spiritual fathers and mothers because it's just not something that they have. It's not a, even really a concept. And now there's this awareness there. Uh, but every, every time I, I've gone, there have been uh, younger men who have come to me and said, would you father me? And, you know, to the capacity that I've been able to, I have. Uh, but at the same time, they're so full of passion. And every time I, I went back, I saw less fear. To the point of the, the, the last meeting that I did there uh, was one of the most difficult. We saw the greatest level of persecution that... Um, that I've seen and they were in perfect peace because the spirit himself had revealed the heavenly realm corporately to the group just during worship um, I, I've told this story a couple of times and uh, you know I, w I was there I'll just very quickly uh, retell it but I, I was uh, scheduled to speak. I got up and I spoke and about a half hour in. Usually when you speak, well, there's no usual when you speak there, to be honest with you. Uh, I've spoken for eight hours at a pop there. You think our services are long? And then they want you to prophesy over everyone personally when you're done with that. It's, they have this term that translates into English like this. We will bleed you to your last drop of blood. And They will. Um, and so about a half hour in, the Holy Spirit very clearly told me that I was done. I mean, as clearly as he ever would, which was curious to me because I knew, um, I knew that I wasn't. But when God says you're done, you're done. And, and so I kind of closed and Benny was there and he goes, okay, now you worship. And I was like, okay. So they had a little piano there. And I've, done, I've done worship over there where you know, they can me this guitar that's, you know, maybe got four or five strings or it's out of tune and I'm standing there playing, I'm singing and Benny's holding the mic and then he starts manifesting in the spirit. It's great. So they had a little piano there. And so the, the beautiful thing about it is that most of the people don't actually speak English. So you can sing whatever you want and it doesn't really matter. You don't have to worry about words on a screen. So I, I was singing one of my own songs. I think I sang Give Me Grace. And I, I finished the song, and then they whisked me out. I didn't know why they whisked me out. Well, I found out later they whisked me out because there was... Uh, a, well, I don't even know if they knew at that point. I think they knew something was going on, but it ended up being um, the largest raid um, that I'd ever been a part of. And I'm just getting less and less bashful about talking about it publicly. Um, and, you know... Three of my friends there, my local friends there, got arrested. And uh, they were released the same day. Uh, Benny thought they might be there for three days, but uh, they released them the same day after three or four hours. One guy wouldn't leave until they let him uh, speak the gospel in the station. <laughs> so I don't know if I would have done that. I'm like, thank you, I'm going to go now. I'm not sure. But 
I met with um, the church leaders that were there in another city. Um, and they said this. They said, you know, when you were worshiping, all of the people in the room began to see angels. And there was such a, a revelation of the heavenly realm there that when they came, when the police came, there's three different bureaus that came, there was no fear because they knew God was with them. Sometimes we shy away from the power that is in worship. And what is worship? Well, worship is, is communion. It's, a, it's a, a form of communion. It's providing a space where Holy Spirit is welcome. It's providing a space where God can come and sit upon the sound that we release. And someone quoted this week, someone, who said we have worshiped worship. And I think culturally, in a sense, that can be true. I, I'm thankful that I, I've never felt that in this house. And I don't know. Every time I, I go other places, I, I find out about all these weird things that are happening in Christendom that I, I just don't know about because I don't, I guess I don't worry ab about or focus on all of the stuff that's really outside of the kingdom that we pretend is inside the kingdom. But in this thing that we, we call worship, we have this capacity not only to transform or be an agent of change in the atmosphere around us, but primarily it starts within us. That's why I, I so appreciated that song we were singing this morning. Come on, my soul, don't you get shy on me. And historically, there's been many moments, you know, where I've heard different leaders, especially as a worship leader, you know, at varying levels that different leaders are just people who say, oh, that worship was soulish. And I've always wondered what that meant to them. And I, I, I sort of understand the sentiment because we're called to, to worship in spirit and in truth. But we are called, we are created as tripartite beings. And so the soul is, is the realm of the mind, will, and the emotions. And we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. And so if we are not engaging our soul in the act of worship, then it is actually in, incomplete. This whole idea of soulish worship or you know, being too emotional, it's rooted in uh, deceticism where there was this belief that, and, and really that goes back into even first century Gnosticism, where we, there was this belief that everything flesh and everything in the natural realm was evil and everything spirit was good, to the point where they went the next step and said that Jesus actually didn't come in the flesh. He was a, a spiritual apparition of God that came, and so it was actually a, the spirit of God that was hanging on the cross. I mean, this is, this is where this stuff is rooted in. And that's not how we were created. We were created as flesh, soul, spirit. And we crucify the flesh. What does that mean? And we subject our soul 
unto our spirit, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we deny its existence or it doesn't mean that we, we call all things evil. It means that we need that chiropractic adjustment where we put our flesh and our soul under the dominion of the spirit, which is renewed, which is regenerated the moment that we give Jesus lordship over our lives. And so when we are in that space, we can recognize in our mind that our soul is not where it needs to be in a moment. And so we can begin to speak to our soul because he's not given us a spirit of fear or I love the New American Standard that says timidity. He's given us a spirit of love, power, and discipline or sound mind so we can put our hand on our belly and say, come on, my soul, don't, get, don't you get shy on me. What is shyness? It's timidity. Because again, the wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. In this day, in this hour, the world needs to see the young, hungry lions stand, speak, declare righteousness, but saturated in the love and the mercy of God. We can speak the truth and still be in love. This is what the world needs. Now, I think I mentioned last week, and last week seems so, when you do a, like a trip in the middle of the week, it's like last week feels like a month ago. But I think I mentioned last week or sometime in the last couple of weeks, I went on this Charles Caps binge. If you don't know who Charles Caps is, he was, you know, one of the Word of Faith guys. And, you know, I love the guy. And, I, you know, I had read some of his things historically, but I never watched him speak. And I, I kind of resonate with him because he had a little swagger in his step. That's kind of how I roll. I got a little swagger in my step. It's not arrogance, it's confidence. See, when the anointing comes, there's a confidence in the way that you carry yourself, in the way that you walk, in the face of deception, in the face of the enemy. And I've told little stories of some of my travels, like even in Africa where, you know, I'm, I'm ministering in a village like where they've never seen a white dude and then the witch doctors walk by just to let you know that they're there and I just kind of look at them and smile. I don't think I ever had fear. I mean, there were some things that I was, you know, I had fear of, but like Kelly Kosky's driving, but <laughs> I, I was never, I was never fearful of witch doctors because truly greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. If God is for me, who can be against me? And nothing comes to me that doesn't cross the Father's desk first. And it's not that I haven't, I mean, you guys know, it's not that I haven't, you know, been in the midst of uh, oppression or been in the midst of persecution. It's not that I haven't rocked up on a village where, uh, you know, all of a sudden we realize we're, we're witnessing like a pagan sacrifice. And, you know, in this day and age, sometimes we'd be like, oh, we got to get away from there because what's on that is going to get on me. No, what's on me is going to get on that. See, I'm a disruptor of evil. I'm not a carrier of it. Because his grace truly is sufficient for me. His mercies really are new every morning. And the, the fullness of God dwells in the collective body of Christ. Now, yes, I'm an ark and I am a temple, but only to the extent that we are a temple. And so I have this concept that the word of God is in my feet in such a way that everywhere I walk, it's just like kingdom is striking the ground. Now, I have the concept. It doesn't mean that I'm, I, I have a constant awareness of it. And the reason why I, I appreciated that song so much this morning because I woke up this morning very soulish. 
You know, I, I thought last night was going to be great because we're flying in. We come in, you know, semi-late, not super late. We actually landed an hour earlier than, earlier than scheduled. But, and then the clocks are going back. You're supposed to get an extra hour of sleep. And then all of a sudden, it's still like 2 a.m. And I'm like, bing. And so I came into worship this morning having to prophesy to my soul. Because I understood that in the manifestation of my being, the soul had taken the lead, my mind, my will, and emotions, instead of walking by spirit, which is wisdom, communion, and conscience. And so when you get in right order within your own being, then it's really on. Then you don't have to worry about what some call emotionalism because the emotion that's, that is exuding from you is being led by the space of wisdom, communion, and conscience. That's where, where we can speak to our soul and say there's a lion inside. And, you know, maybe the roar of the lion comes out and that might freak some people out. I mean, I'm not asking you to roar this morning. I've seen plenty of that in my history. There's a lot of roaring that happens in Asia, but it's, there's actually a specific prophetic word that was released, you know, years and years and years ago about that. But, but if you do, I mean, I'll, I'll be okay with it. I, I'm just not that, you know, one of these days, maybe I'll be a big manifester. I don't know. I have the, what Aaron Evans calls the standing up anointing. But we have this capacity to speak something that we don't, feel as though it already is. See, that's what faith does. That's the power of faith. We can access the realm of heaven before we feel it and sense it. And some people will think, oh, well, that's hypocritical. No, that's faith. That's calling something that is not as though it is. And the only, the, the only, the only way that it can... It really can't be hypocritical. The issue is that maybe we don't know the word well enough to war with it. See, if we're saturated in the word and we're hungry for the word and we're ingesting the word and we begin to war with the promises and, and the, the truth of the word of God, even over our own vessel, it's not hypocritical. It's you recognizing even in the realm of your intellect that something is out of balance in the way that you're operating in a moment and now you're just prophesying to your being to bring it back into rightful order. Because no matter what side of the bed you wake up on in the morning, the scripture is still true that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We've still been called according to his riches and glory. My God still will supply all of my needs. He still will do above and beyond anything that I could ever ask or think. His divine power has still given me everything I need for life and godliness. He still has set a table before us in the presence of the enemy. It's maybe we're eating from the wrong table. See, the issue is never his word. The issue is never his spirit. The issue is never his, his sovereignty. His, uh, the issue is really our submission in the moment. And the world right now, perhaps more than ever in our generation, needs to see the righteous ones stand. We need to stand for truth. 
We need to be the containers, the, the receivers, the containers, and the dispensers of the goodness of God. And the goodness of God, it manifests in, in many ways. But one of, I would say, the top three agents of change within us is peace. It's that peace that is beyond the intellectual capacity to comprehend. It's, it's this idea of being able to stand in the midst of the storm and not be shaken by it. It's really being what Jesus said or having the understanding of what Jesus said that, you know, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Some traditional translations say tribulation. Are you pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? Like, we're, we're going to have tribulation because we're in the world. But Jesus says, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. And he said that before he actually had overcome the world. Why? Because he's God and he understands that he can step out of, of, of this timeline and call things that have not quite fully come to pass in the manifest reality of the present as though it absolutely has. He knew he was heading toward the cross. He knew that he was the Lamb of God. He knew he was the Lamb that was slain from the foundations of the earth. And so he could, in that moment, because he was in the Father, could understand the end from the beginning and say, you know what? I've overcome the world, even though we hadn't actually overcome the world yet. How confusing that must have been for the disciples when he said, hey, I've overcome the world, and then the next thing they know, he's dying on a cross. Until Pentecost, until, you know, the 120 are in the upper room and the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. It's the very first revival meeting ever in history. I so wish I could have been there. I know, then I wouldn't be here. You know, I understand that. But I, you know, I, I'm asking the Lord for that encounter, Steve, where I could just, I could feel, I could be present, I could see what it's like to be in a, in a mighty rushing wind. But at the same time, I'm so grateful to God that I've been able to taste and see that the Lord is good, that I've been able to be in the midst of sovereign moves of God, where you're just, you just, your being crumbles under the weight of his glory. Now, for me, that didn't happen physically so much. I mean, maybe twice in my life yeah, I've ever been, you know, what they call slain in the spirit, where the, the, the power of God or the weight of his glory was so strong that I just, you know, crumbled to the floor. I was actually leading worship at one conference, and I don't even, I can't, at least right now, I can't remember exactly what went down. I just remember that I, I came to, and I was draped over the floor monitor next to my keyboard, and people were coming in for the evening session, and my first thought wasn't, oh, God is so good. My first thought was, oh, I missed dinner. <laughs> it was an imposed fast But nothing created can contain his glory. And so when we are positioned rightly in him, we have these moments of time where the release of his presence, the release of his essence, his nature, that weighty chabod glory is so strong that our being has no choice but to actually release it everywhere we go. I remember I, I was in a church when revival broke out across the earth back in the 90s. I was in a church that denied it. I didn't leave the church because God didn't tell me to leave. 
plain and simple. I, you know, somehow even, you know, at that young age and I was in my mid-20s, I understood that I don't go just because I'm not happy or because they're not doing what I think they should do. I go when he says go. Because the fruit of the Spirit still is faithfulness. I mean, that's just one aspect of the flavor within the fruit of the Spirit. And so I had gone to, um, I, you know, I went every week. I went, you know, sometimes nightly to these meetings where God was just, he was so sovereign. His presence was so strong that you, you, people were being hit in the parking lots. People would walk into the doors and be immediately hit by the Spirit. For me, my primary manifestation was tears. Just the beauty of the Lord was so pervasive that I would weep. And so I, I received prayer or something. You know, there was a particularly powerful meeting, and I remember going to church that Sunday, and the pastor of the church walked up to me, and he shook my hand. And when he shook my hand, it was like a bolt of electricity left my arm and went into his arm, and he just went, and he got this big smile on his face, and he said, wow. I knew what had happened. But it wasn't my position necessarily to explain to him what had happened or to, to express my position or my apologetic on the current revival movement. My job was just to release his glory, just to be present. And it wasn't even anything that I did intentionally. It was just because it was Christ in me, the hope or the assurance of the revelation, the release of the glory of God on earth. This is what the world needs now. This is what your community needs now. This is what the nations need now. And I don't know if you're aware of it, but there's, there's much warfare in the atmosphere these days. Yes, and all the intercessors said amen. I'd love to say that that's why I woke up cranky this morning, but it's really not. You know, warfare is just par for the course. But to understand the strategy of the enemy, it's, we have to recognize that, first of all, he's not doing anything really new. God is the one that does a new thing. The enemy is just doing the same thing that he's always done. This is not rocket science here. But to understand what the enemy is doing, it starts with two scriptures, Genesis chapter one and John chapter one. And they both start with this phrase, in the beginning. Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word. Let me read John chapter 1, 1 through 4 in the New American Standard Version. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So to understand why the enemy is so cantankerous, against the things of God, 
we have to understand what was God doing in the beginning? And we started this week um, our studies with Rabbi Allen. And I, I think there's still space for Wednesday night. I, I'm not sure. You'd have to check on that. But um, if you've never sat in those sessions, I'm telling you, because he's, he's going to be moving out of the region and he's not going to be as accessible, you want to get in on this. First of all, because you want to study the word. But he has this amazing teaching years ago that, um, that I got to, to sit through and saturate in for years. And he talks about the goodness of God. The Hebrew word for good is tov. And I'm not going to do an exhaustive explanation of this, but let's talk about the goodness of God. Because to understand the strategy of the enemy, we have to understand what is it that he's trying to disrupt so we have creation. You know, day one, the light is good. I could stop there because I just love that. You know, God says be light. We, we translate it as let there be, which sort of makes it feel permissive. Like, you know, let there be light. And, and then we pray that way, you know. You know, let us be. No, God doesn't operate that way. He just says be light. See, when God speaks, he's got a swagger in his step too because he's very confident in himself that what he says will come to pass. So light, the light is good. Day two, the atmosphere, the, the firmament, it's good. Day three, the dry ground, the plants, they're good. Day four, the sun, moon, and stars, they're good. Day five, birds and sea and creatures are good. But then something happens on day six. He creates mankind. See, that was the whole point. Let's, let us make man in our image. So he makes first man, and then he takes the rib out, and he makes first woman. And then he takes a step back, and he looks at the totality of everything that he's created, and he says, hmm, this is very good. I love the, the, the Hebrew word that is the expression of this word very, you know, because we, we have very, that's our English word. It, it doesn't speak to the strength and the immensity of what God is trying to express there. It's like powerfully good. It is preeminently good. It's, it's massively, super abundantly good. So why the distinction at this point? We, we have this idea maybe that, that God's saying it's very good because he's looking at everything. But first of all, he sees the end from the beginning. He understands that each piece is good. But then on the other side of creating mankind, he says, oh, now it's very good. Why? After he creates humanity, he first blesses. Everything I say is a potential bunny trail. God wants to bless you. I've literally had pastors of churches tell me, I don't believe that God wants to bless you. I'm not sure they really believe that, but they are so reactionary to abuses of Scripture that they abuse Scripture themselves. 
I long for the day that we could just sit upon the word and speak its truth and not be reacting to someone that we don't agree with. I'm reeling that bunny back in. So he blesses, he commissions, and he releases humanity into function. But the beautiful thing about it is that when he releases them into function, it's the eve of the sixth day. The next day is the seventh day. It's Sabbath. And so the very first function that they perform is rest. And now they live from rest before they labor. There's a lot of teaching on rest right now that almost teaches that we do everything from rest. In a sense, we do, but it doesn't mean that we don't labor, that we don't toil, that we don't strive for the things of the gospel, to further the gospel, to see kingdom come and his will fully manifest on earth as it is in heaven. Because that's what Jesus did. That's what Paul the apostle did. As a matter of fact, that's what all the apostles did. There is much work to be done. The issue is, is that we're, we're not working for the weekend. We live from it. Going to reel that bunny trail back in. So let's get into the nitty gritty of why this is good. Genesis 2, 5. Now you've got to understand in Genesis 1, this can be confusing because we read the full creation account and we assume that everything's been done. But see, nothing that God does is, is a charismatic magic trick. He calls things that are not as though they are, and now we are called in tasks, tasked to bring about the manifestation of the things that he's called forth. How does this work? Genesis 2.5, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. Well, wait a second. Genesis 1.11 says, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yield, yielding seed, and fruit trees, and the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. Except Genesis 2.5 says it wasn't so. So what is it? In the realm of God, when he says something, it is so, even if it hasn't manifested on the earth yet. So Genesis 2.5 says, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had not... Uh, oh, gosh, I can read well. I think I need to go to 36-point font now, Jeremy. I'm at 30-point font. I'm, I'm, I'm young. I'm vibrant. My eyes can see clearly. Now that the rain is gone. My glasses are right there, but I ain't putting them on. Got my $15 Amazon glasses. Okay. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. That's God's part. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. That is our part. A few weeks ago, I spoke, I think... I don't know, it might have been in California, in Bakersfield, but I spoke on Leviticus 26, and I believe we're in Leviticus 26, that, that we are moving from a season of sowing seed into a season where the rain is going to fall upon the seed that we have already sown, and on the other side of that, we will begin to see harvest. I believe we're at the tail end of seed sowing. Now, there's always seed time and harvest, but I'm just saying that there is something particular. There is a kairos moment. There is a, a convergence of time where God is going to rain blessing upon that which we have sown in the season that is passing. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. So there's always this part where, where God is sending rain, but we have to, uh, what the King James says, till the soil. 
So when God looked and he took a step back and he looked at the totality of creation, he said, oh, now it's very good. Why? Because he had created humanity to co-labor with him to bring about the unfurling of creation, the unfurling of the goodness of God that would never stop as long as we continue to till the soil where he has placed our feet for such a time as this. Animals didn't have the capacity to do that on their own. The, the plants didn't have the capacity to do that on their own. See, at the end of day six, nothing yet had sprouted because he was waiting to, for, for mankind to come and co-labor with him to bring about heavenly realities on earth. He so wants you to co-labor with him, to some, some would call it co-create with him to bring heaven on earth. The dreams of God manifesting upon the ground in the region, in the land, in the nations where we've been called to. Does that make sense? So I don't remember, I don't remember the exact definition that Rabbi Allen has for the goodness of God, but he speaks of seed being planted or being placed in dark spaces into the soil of the earth. And you can carry this in the reality and you can carry this in all of the metaphors of our lives where there is seed placed in dark spaces. And at that point, the seed isn't life, but it has the potential for future life. And this brings new life even to the parable of the sower because a seed has potential, but God is waiting for the sons and daughters to go to the spaces and the places where the seed is and not only cultivate the ground so that that seed can have life, but to drop and plant new seeds for future generations. That is where the goodness of God fully manifests. It's that potential for future life. This is why a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Why? Because a good man is willing to sow his life into something that he may never see the fruit of. This is why we toil to establish a culture of revival even in this land. I have never, I don't want to say never, maybe at some point when I was young and stupid, did I ever call this land the frozen chosen? But I can't ever remember calling this land the frozen chosen because I truly don't believe that. This is not a minister's graveyard. Any place can be a minister's graveyard if you don't have the life and the light of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's no place I'd rather be. Man, you don't even have to go very far. You can just talk to Nance about how easy it is to encourage people in this land because in the darkness, light is so easy to put on display that even on those days where you wake up cranky, the light that's in you is the light unto men. So don't worry about what mood you woke up in. As a matter of fact, the only, the only reason why I worry about... if. I, that I get concerned if I wake up in a cranky mood because that's the day I realize that God is going to use me. Like, why can't he use me when I feel all fired up and I'm just in the spirit and I'm ready to go, oh, Shandai, on the, you know, walk around and see people healed. No, it's a day that I don't want to talk to anybody. You know what I mean? I got some nice shoes on today. Mm-hmm. God is looking for family. 
God is looking for co-laborers. God is looking for a people that can, with him, by him, and for him, call things that are not as though they are. And God is looking for you and me to steward the continual unfurling goodness of creation on earth. The goodness of God is like that seed planted in a dark place. It has the potential to be something great. But right now, it's just a seed. The goodness finds its fullness when we come into our position as the created sons and daughters and co-labor with God to bring forth that potential for future life into the manifest reality of the present. That means now. The goodness of God is now. Somebody say now. now. There's power when we say that. We reach into heavenly spaces and we pull down heavenly realities into the now. I, I become grieved by the things that I learn about on the earth. And I, I become grieved by the things that, that I learn about even in our nation, in our region, the things that are going on, the things that are hidden from vision, the things that are reported, the things that are not. I'm more concerned about the things that aren't reported than I am the things that are. I spend very little time listening to media because the media is run by the, the voice of the spirit of this age. Now, some people are, are called and tasked to do that because that's their job. Right now, I don't feel like that's my job. And I rue the day that it ever might be because that makes me cranky. But you have to understand that the primary structure through which God unfurls his goodness on earth is, is through family. Yes. It's like that old song, I'm so glad to be a part of the family of God. It's through family. That's what God is interested in. In the beginning, he wanted family. In the end, that's what he's going to get. And the enemy has been trying to block the continual unfurling of the goodness of God ever since I would say day one, but certainly since day six. Every major strategy of the enemy on earth is to block the potential for future life. It's not, it's really no surprise that the enemy is doing everything that he can to dismantle even the very structure that God set up to reveal his goodness on earth, which is family. How do we know this? Well, the very first murder that occurred in Scripture, in history, ever, was a murder within family. It was Cain and Abel. And then in generations that followed, false religions rose up in rebellion against God. The spirits behind them enticed humanity to worship the created rather than the creator. And not only that, it, it, they took it a step further and they began to mimic what they knew would be necessary to bring redemption to mankind, which was blood sacrifice. When I go into Transkei, which is that tribal region in the middle of South Africa that is, is largely, honestly, ignored by even the, the quote-unquote Western churches of South Africa. But I was sitting with... Um, the mission directors in Gatyana, which are, they're, they're educated, but they're tribal people. 
And Sonelle looked at me and she said, everything requires blood. You have to understand that everything in this land requires blood. And they shy away from some of the things that are the reality of, of scriptures because of the abuses that have come to the land. So you have th these ministers, these quote-unquote ministers that come from other African lands and they're self-proclaimed apostles and they come in and they plant a church and all of a sudden the church explodes and you'll have this, this church in the middle of a destitute area where the pastor has built a mansion and they have this beautiful structure and all these crazy offerings are coming in and then literally the, the I don't know if the last time I I was there or the two times ago that I was there this one particular pastor from this particular nation who is a self-proclaimed apostle was arrested because he had when he had planted his church he came into relationship with the local witch doctors and had been engaging in child sacrifice to gain favor in the land Jesus. everything requires blood The issue is that Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the earth, the final perfect sacrifice, this blood that was shed 2,000 years ago once and for all mankind so that he could say, as far as the east is from the west, I have cast your sin from you and there is no need for any other sacrifice. But the enemy is constantly trying to interject himself and bring a block and a stop to the goodness of God by blinding the eyes of the unbeliever so that we, we think that we still have to engage in things to earn our way, to gain favor. We yearn and we look and we put our hands onto the things that are temporal instead of setting our affections on things above. In 1977, the New York Times published an article. There was a guy from, I think it was Brown University. No, I'm sorry, University of California, Berkeley. His name was Dr. Wood, Woodrow Bora, and he estimated that the Aztecs sacrificed 250,000 people a year. 1% of their entire population sacrificed. Included in that were infants and children. That is still occurring on the earth today. Maybe to, not to that level, but you have to understand that that's just one religion. That's just one religion. But something happens when innocent blood is shed unjustly on the ground. There is a justice that is available. And I believe the justice comes in the form of revival and not revival, simply revival in, in, in people coming to our great church meetings. I'm talking about revival that is unto something, revival that is unto a reforming of culture, a reforming of, of the land upon which such injustices have taken place. You know, historically, we have, we have seen revivals come and go, but we, now we have this vision that revival is to be unto something 
saying that there is this inheritance that we can leave upon the land that literally is the goodness of God manifesting where we have been called so that what was unjust in a previous season is released now in the form of the justice of God where many are coming into the knowledge of Christ, into the knowledge of salvation, into the knowledge of transformation. And, and even Che this past weekend, he spoke of an encounter, and I, I anticipate that he'll speak about it this weekend, that the Lord came to him and, and made this declaration that we are in an epic season of transformation. Yes. Because if God is for me, who can be against me? But you better believe the enemy wants to place himself between our face and God's purpose. And so now in a society that no longer venerates, culturally anyway, you know, pagan religions or even the supernatural, you know, people, people, it's interesting that, that some theologians who are cessationist, meaning they believe the gifts died with the passing of the last apostle, they're starting to move their position because there are so many irrefutable testimonies around the world. They're saying, well, God still does that stuff, but he only does that in, in third world nations. He doesn't, he doesn't do that here, but he, he'll do that in Africa. Or he'll do that. He does it through the sons and daughters who will say yes. But I think we can recognize that within a generation that this particular nation has, has moved from a nation that had biblical values to a nation that truly is secular, that we've taken this idea of separation of church and state and we reversed what the, in, the intent was. The intent was not to keep the church out of government. The, the intent was to keep the government out of church. That's reality. That's history. We just got to read some history books. Having said that, look, I'm not looking for a theocracy. I mean, if we had a, a, you know, a really rockin' brilliant Christian man or woman running for president, I'd probably vote for them. But, you know, I want someone running the country that can actually run the country. I'm not looking for a friend. I'm not looking for a buddy. I'm not looking for a good-looking guy. I know that's what the nation is looking for. I'm looking for somebody that can actually govern. And then we pray for our leaders just like we pray for any and every leader in our land. Regardless of where we are on the spectrum of belief. So now we live in a society that no longer venerates pagan religions or any religion for that matter, other than the intellect. The intellect occupies the thrones of our souls. I love that concept. I speak on it. I just reference it a lot. It, it really came from a book that Paul Keith Davis wrote probably close to 20 years ago called The Thrones of Our Soul. I, it may be out of print at this point, but it was based on a prophetic encounter that he had, a visionary encounter that he had. And he saw these things occupying thrones in our soul, spaces that we haven't quite yielded to the lordship of Jesus. We live in a land where we want the pleasures 
of covenant, but without the commitment. And so the enemy does what he's always done. He initiates a strategy to impede the advancing goodness of God. I speak on these things with fear and trepidation. But we have to understand why. Even... Even if the voices that we have listened to have not spoken with tones of righteousness. Because the media will always highlight that which is aberrant on all sides. The strategy of the enemy has always been to disrupt family and to disrupt life. We live in the most fatherless generation in the history of our nation. And it's not even, it's not limited to this generation. The, the biggest issue that I see when I go into Trans Sky is that it's a fatherless culture because the young men grow to be 18 and then they go to the, they leave the villages, they go to the townships to work in the diamond mines, they earn money for the very first time, they have all the, 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 the quote-unquote pleasures of this world that are available to them and then they come back in December and they get married, they, they rape their women, their women have babies and then they go back to the mines and these children grow up without fathers. And we, 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 really, we feel like that's horrible, but at the same time in this land, we are, we are statistically living in the most fatherless generation in the history of our nation. Why is this important? Because one of the commissions that God gave to mankind was to name. Not only to name the animals, but to name our children. And we think about it casually. But there's something that is transferred when we name something. That's why it hurts when people call us names. You know, when I was a kid, they would say sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. But that's not true. Because there is power in the identity that is transferred when we name something. And so much of the issue that we see in the land today is lack of identity. It's insane. It's insane. And I, I mean that in the purest sense of the world, of the word. We have stepped into this even 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, the things that are becoming commonplace, it lacks rationale. And so we have a generation now that has grown without identity to the point that they don't even know what pronoun to address themselves with anymore. And it can change with the blowing of the winds. Look, I'm not saying this in jest. I'm not saying this to beat anyone down. And, and people will come to me and people might write me and ping me or hit me on social media and say, well, you're, you're homophobic or you're this. Look, I'm not afraid of anything except bees. And honeybees I'm okay with, but wasps, no. And for some reason, spiders are starting to get to me now. 
There was this giant spider in my man cave in the basement a few weeks ago. And then I fell asleep. And then I woke up and I, I forgot where it was. And I woke up. The first thing on my mind was this giant spider that I was sure wanted to eat me. I found it and I killed it. My wife was upset. She's a catch and releaser. She's a steward of creation. Look. I have held weeping kids who were crushed because they didn't know who they were. In that office, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 year old kids that were looking to trans transition from one gender to another gender because. They didn't know who they were. And they wept. They wept because somebody loved them. Because we're living in a generation without fathers, without mothers. We're living even in a church that lacks spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. And there is a generation and generations that are looking to you and to me to tell them who they are. Why was it such a big deal? Why is biblical marriage, the concept of biblical marriage, such a big deal? Because God has always been after family. I've had leaders in churches tell me that they don't feel like abortion is a big deal. And I understand, look, if we just live in the realm of the intellect, we can make arguments and we can make cases, and they have been made. But what I am telling you is that the strategy of the enemy has been to cut off the unfurling goodness of God, the unfurling potential for future life. That has been his, his strategy from the beginning, and that is his strategy today. And it's not, look, some people, are, not you guys, because you guys are all amazing, but some people, they're not going to like that I'm talking about this. I get the messages. I get the emails. 95.7% uh, of me doesn't care. I'm not going to say it doesn't twinge me a little bit. But 100% of me is not afraid. I have been registered independent my entire adult life. So don't tell me what you think I am politically or not. I stand for the kingdom. I know... I know political operatives on both sides of the aisle that stand for life and that stand for family. We cannot, as kingdom people, drift into log the logical fallacy of false dilemma where it's this either-or thing. A little leaven leavens the whole bre bread. We are called to be salt and light. That means everywhere. There was a major ministry recently 
And if I named the name, you would know the name. And they brought this woman in to speak. She was an elected official, an elected official in the Democratic Party. And she got up and spoke and she said, I, I want you to know that I'm a lifelong Democrat, but I stand for life and I stand for family. The top donors of that ministry went to the head of the ministry and said, if you don't remove her, then we'll withdraw our funding. And he did. This is the kind of stuff that I wish I never knew. We are called to be salt and light. We are called to stand for life. We are called to stand for family because this is the goodness of God on earth. The rain will fall. The question is, what is the seed that we have sown that it will fall upon? And so I feel an ultra, this, this incredible sobriety in this moment. And not only this election, but elections past. And it's not the things that we know that make me sober. It's the things that are going on under the surface that are never reported. The legislations that are passed that you're not even aware of. It's not the things that are seen we need to be concerned about. It's the things that are hidden. We have to stand for righteousness. And we cannot lower our voice to the standard of the voice of the spirit of this age. This is where much of the church as we know it has missed it. Because we've seen how communication happens in society. And instead of keeping our standard, a kingdom standard, we have lowered our standard to something lesser because we think that truth will not prevail unless we use lesser weapons of warfare. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty. And they're for the pulling down of strongholds. What's a stronghold? It's systems of logic built upon lies that we believe to be true. And again, it's not a charismatic magic trick. It's something that we pull down in our individuality brick by brick stone by stone so that when the fire comes we will stand purified like pure gold and then we can speak truth but so saturated in love that you can embrace the wounded the hurting 
the fatherless. We can comfort all who mourn. Who mourn. We can proclaim freedom to the captive with no other agenda than to be the fulfillment of Jesus who said, kingdom come, your will fully manifest on earth as it is in heaven. You won't find me making fun of the gender confused. You won't find me casting stones on the young woman who aborted her baby. My heart burns for the fatherless. My heart burns for a generation that is so looking for fathers and mothers to tell them who they are. Many of them don't even know it. Because if we don't name them, they will name themselves. And they are. But the church, the body that is under Christ, under the bond of the spirit who is holy, Ruach HaKodesh, is at her greatest opportunity in this land. Because love wins. And I'm talking about real love. Love that calls out injustice. Love that identifies evil. But love that also proclaims freedom. Amen. Amen. So I want to do two things right now. I just feel such a heavy sobriety. And I've been here speaking on a regular basis. I, mean, I started here in 2007 as the worship pastor. Transitioned into the senior leader role in 2011. I've never spoken a message like this. It's probably partly why I woke up cranky this morning because I knew I had to do it and I didn't want to do it. But I love these kids. I love these people. I love you guys. My wife always reminds me how much I used to say that I don't like people. I stopped saying that. I mean, I do value my alone time but I love people. And there's such deep woundedness in this land. And we are seeing the frailty of the decision to make the intellect our God. to venerate and worship the created instead of the creator. To deny the Father who would name us and claim us.
the one who so loved all of creation that he sent his son, that whosoever believes, trusts, makes him this primary authority in their lives would never perish but have everlasting life, that we would taste and see, just like the women did yesterday, taste and see that the Lord is good. The enemy wants to stop the goodness. That's the strategy. That's why these things are important. And when we speak on things in the nation, because it is our sphere of influence, we're fortunate in a sense that we have the ability to speak on such things because I've been in nations where they can't. Our task is to reconnect a land with the goodness of God. Because that's what John 3.16 really means. The word for world there is cosmos. It's all of creation. God loved all of creation. He wanted to go back to day six where he said, it's very good to call forth sons and daughters, to co-labor with him, to not just move upon us in moments, but now to tabernacle within us, the beauty of the Lord. Saying yes to Jesus is no small thing. We need to be healed from our histories. We need to tear down all of these systems of logic that are built upon lies that we believe to be true, but that truth doesn't line up with truth. So that we can be pure vessels righteous by faith alone, not because we entered in some grand behavioral modification program. And we're justified by the blood. And now we can say, the spirit of the living God is upon me to preach good news. It's good news. Bind up the brokenhearted to comfort all who mourn to proclaim freedom for the captive to declare this is the year of the favor of our God. Not just here at the Bridge Metro West, but everywhere we set our feet when we go forth from this place, across this region, across the nation, and the world. So we're going to multitask in this moment. First, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you're walking, you're walking. You might be walking or watching online. You haven't said yes to him. You haven't made him the primary authority in your life. This is that time. This is that time of surrender. You might have been in church your whole life. I've met people that have been in church their whole life but didn't know him one thing to feel the goosebumps it's another thing to walk toward the face of God and allow his nature 
to overtake and transform yours. God, I thank you that your mercies are new every morning. So I'm not going to pray a prayer with you today. I'm just going to ask you to confess that Jesus is Lord. Just say yes to him. And then allow the Holy Spirit come in and start dealing with the issues in your life. Because that's what he does. See, the Bible actually never asks the unbeliever to confess their sin. It asks the unbeliever to confess Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit on the other side will come in and help you confess your sin to one another and to him. for listening to this message from the Bridge Metro West in Natick, Massachusetts. Paul David Gidry is the senior pastor at the Bridge. For more information about the Bridge Metro West family, our gatherings and events, visit www.bridgemetrowest.com or call us at 508-651-0277.